0: hear that jingle jingle it could be Kris Kringle or a home invader coming down the chimney a jilted lover flashing a knife under the mistletoe, or a disgruntled co-worker at the office Christmas party lacing the punch with arsenic. It's disgusting. Jen and Cam, the hosts of our true crime podcast, are always on Santa's nice list. But this holiday season, they're filling your stockings with 12 nightmarish crimes committed by the lowest scumbags on the naughty list.
1: It happened in Florida, so everybody's now going, oh. Oh."
0: They'll be coming down the chimney, counting down the 12 nights till christmas did i say oh, it, one, six two,
1: three, four five yeah. seven that's eight, it
0: nine. with a different true crime case every night each one naughtier than the last
1: this one is a doozy
0: so spike your eggnog it's gonna
1: make you want to regurgitate. tape
0: because you'll need it for our true crime podcasts 12 nightmares before christmas they're coming to town december 13th through 24th Listen to our true crime podcast on your favorite podcast apps. Well, I
1: cannot wait. Hit me with it. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. Dive right in. We are. We are. We are are Cultivate. 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 We are Cultivate. (laughs) Cultivate. so much for tuning in to Weird Distractions Podcast. This is a weekly show where I, your host Alex, rotate in discussing true crime cases, paranormal hotspots, eerie folklore tales, urban legends, and sometimes conspiracy theories to provide you and more than likely what Frank Epperson may have considered a weird distraction from everyday life. This week, I'm covering a devastating true crime case out of the United States that involves Hollywood and a carriage of injustice. But before jumping into that, I'm going to share a bit of housekeeping and then what listener Laura needs a distraction from along with what I need a distraction from this week. As always, if you have a need for a distraction that you would like me to read on air, whether you need a distraction from work or, again, maybe the fact that Halloween has passed, feel free to send it my way either by shooting me a DM or sending me an email. In terms of housekeeping this week, when it comes to world news, ensuring that on the show, I usually try to stay away from most things, especially in the sense of, oh, I need a distraction from this tragic thing that isn't happening to me where I live, but rather to someone else in the world, because it doesn't really feel right to me. However, there is a lot going on presently in the world, and I would be remiss to not highlight resources about it. In today's show notes, please check out some resources I came across regarding the Palestine and Israel war. I'm personally still learning every day about it and have, so far, found these resources beneficial in trying to do as such. If you have resources, please send them my way, and I'd be more than happy to share them. In terms of a listener distraction this week, I had the lovely pleasure of receiving this from Lisa, who sent the following message to me on Instagram. Hi Alex, I love the pod. I'm binge listening today for a distraction from my parents possible, maybe likely divorce. Feel free to share that on the pod and thank you for the distraction. Thank you Lisa for tuning in. I highly appreciate your message and I hope you're doing well. Hopefully both your parents are doing okay as well. In terms of my need for a distraction this week is my body is responding to being on the go for so long. I know last week I unexpectedly took it off. I'm still kind of recovering from a cold, but this is probably a good reminder to always make sure you're taking care of yourself. If you are like me and you're finding that you're always busy, you're always doing something, you never make time to relax and just do nothing, you really need to. I I know I need to, so uh, that's my need for distraction this week. I'm still getting over this cold. I'm hoping it will be gone sooner rather than later, but I'm just glad to be behind the mic finally, and having said that, let's just get into this week's episode. <laughs> Alright, as mentioned, I'm back with a true crime case, one that more than likely will engage some emotions to those who know and to those that are going to be learning about this case for the very first time. The case is the murder of Dominique Dunn. More than just a star on the rise, she was a young woman whose life was taken far too soon by a man who, seemingly, got a slap on the wrist as punishment. Due to potential coarse language, distressing topics such as domestic violence, and other disturbing adult themes that could be discussed today, listener discretion is advised. Born to parents Ellen and Dominique Dunn on November 23rd of 1959, Dominique entered this world with sprinkles of being upper class within her DNA. Her mother, Ellen, reportedly was a ranching Harris whose father, Dominique's grandfather, partially owned the Griffin Wheel Company of Chicago, while Dominique's father, Dominique, was an investigative journalist, actor, and producer. On the outside, the Dunn clan, including older brothers Griffin and Alexander, seemed like they were living the American dream. One write-up in an LA Times article noted how the family would host these lavish parties, often rubbing shoulders and schmoozing with folks such as Nancy and Ronald Reagan, Natalie Wood, David Niven, Billy Wilder, Truman Capote, and more. And yet, the family would disperse beginning in 1967 when Ellen and Dominique divorced. It's unclear how Dominique, who was 8 at the time, took the divorce, or what everyday life looked for her afterwards. What is publicly shared online that took place next, after this life event for Dominique, was that she graduated school and spent a year in Florence, Italy. There, she reportedly studied art and learned Italian, and hopefully enjoyed herself to the fullest. Dominique would go on to then study acting, taking the Milton Katselis acting class, a class that would also be taken by actors such as George Clooney, Michelle Pfeiffer, Alec Baldwin, Kate Hudson, and more. This, along with her own talent and hard work, streamlined Dominique into stage performances such as A West Side Story. In 1976, Dominique hit the screen with her first role as Kathy Robinson in the ABC network television movie called Diary of a Teenage Hitchhiker. I've never seen it, but according to IMBD, it's about a teenage girl named Julie Thurston who has no wheels and thus decides to hitchhike to get around. But while this is happening, there's apparently a quote psychopath roaming the highways, picking up young girls, and sexually assaulting them. After this, Dominique then got supporting roles in television shows such as Lou Grant, Family, Heart to Heart, Fame, and Breaking Away, and she also appeared in several other television films. After these opportunities sprung, Dominique then lands a role in the 1982 film Poltergeist. This is not something I've watched. It is on my list to do, so please don't at me. I'm going to do it eventually. I just need to find it. But the movie basically focuses on a family whose home is invaded by malevolent ghosts that abduct their youngest daughter. The movie was a success, and many resources point out that Poltergeist was just the beginning of a projected great career for Dominique. But something, or rather someone, would rob Dominique of such a future. The year was 1981, then 22-year-old Dominique meets a man by the name of John Thomas Sweeney. John was apparently a sous-chef at a described high-end former Los Angeles restaurant called Ma Maison. John and Dominique would lock eyes at a party and the two quickly fell for one another, moving in with each other after a few weeks of dating. The relationship started great, but as time went on, things went from great to concerning. In a direct quote from a Medium article to elaborate further, quote, Sweeney was jealous and possessive, resulting in the relationship quickly deteriorating. The couple fought frequently and Sweeney began to physically abuse Dunn. One account reported on August 27th of 1982, Sweeney yanked handfuls of Dunn's hair from the root. Frightened, Dunn fled to her mother's home where Sweeney soon showed up, banging on the windows and doors to be let in. Dunn's mother told him to leave and threatened to call police, end quote. Dominique reportedly would go back to the apartment she and John shared after this incident, where the pair reconciled. But band-aids don't fix bullet holes, and by September 26 of 1982, another explosive fight took place at the couple's apartment. Reports claim that, during an argument... John reportedly grabbed Dominique by the throat before throwing her on the floor where he began strangling her. As this was taking place, a friend who was staying with the couple could hear loud gagging sounds and ran into the room where John and Dominique were. Dominique told her friend that John was trying to kill her, but John dismissed this claim and supposedly told Dominique to come back to bed. Dominique seemingly acts like she is complying with John's request, but she actually sneaks out of the bathroom window and bolts to her car. In what sounds like something out of a movie, John hears Dominique start the car, runs out of the apartment, and jumps on the roof of the vehicle. Dominique eventually gets John off of her car and drives away, where she then flees to safety. After this, she rotates between crashing at her mom's home and her friends before calling John and ending the relationship for good. John would move out of the apartment, and Dominique would move back in and change the locks. I cannot fathom how this situation must have made Dominique feel, being in the home she once shared with someone she trusted and cared for who seemingly caused pain and heartache. The layers of one person's trauma after being in a violent relationship are thick, personal, and extremely delicate to the point where people who haven't been in an abusive relationship may not truly comprehend what that person goes through on a daily basis. Unfortunately, this is not where Dominique's feature on the show ends. Jumping to October 30th of 1982, Dominique was reportedly at home with her friend and colleague, David Packer, as the pair were rehearsing scenes for a miniseries called V. Accounts claim that at some point on this day, Dominique is on the phone with a female friend while David is there, and during this call, the operator interrupts the conversation with Dominique then informing her friend, oh god, it's Sweeney, let me get him off the phone. The phone call between Dominique and her female friend ends, and I think it goes without saying, she takes John's call. It turns out that John had been stalking Dominique after their breakup with resources noting that he would randomly show up uninvited at her home and workplace. John would end up attending Dominique's place on October 30th, in which Dominique agreed to talk with John outside. David was still in the house and agreed to hang out inside so that Dominique and John could talk in private. One resource noted that the conversation was around John wanting to move back in with Dominique, which she was not in favor for. John, perhaps in the mindset that Dominique would take him back again, began arguing with Dominique about her turning him down. David would later recall seeing the pair arguing in the driveway from the window, noting that he didn't get involved because he thought it was a private matter. That private matter became more vicious, with John reportedly grabbing at Dominique by her neck, choking her for about four to six minutes. From my understanding, Dominique would collapse onto the driveway once John kind of lets go of her and eventually she would slip into a coma. growing concern David looks out the window again and sees Dominique down with John standing by her David calls the police who originally told him that Dominique's address was out of their jurisdiction however eventually police do arrive on scene which could you imagine how scary that would have been to hear? You're calling 911 because your friend is passed out on the driveway after being in a conversation or rather an argument with her abusive ex-boyfriend, who is still out there, might I add, and police are like, oh yeah, we don't cover that area. Sorry, figure it out on your own. Like, that's terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. When they showed up, they saw Dominique on the ground and John in the driveway, who apparently greeted them by stating, quote, I killed my girlfriend and I tried to kill myself. As paramedics were taking Dominique's body away, John made another alarming statement to police, one that I came across from an LA Weekly article, quote, man, I blew it. I killed her. I don't think I choked her that hard. I just lost my temper and blew it again, end quote. 22-year-old Dominique was then transported to Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, where she was placed on life support, but sadly never regained consciousness. Days passed, and Dominique could not regain any brain activity. By November 4th of 1982, the Dunn family made the difficult decision to turn off Dominique's life support machines, with Dominique's mother, Ellen, reportedly requesting that Dominique's heart and kidneys be donated to transplant recipients. Dominique's funeral would be held two days later, where she would be buried in the Westwood Village Memorial Park Cemetery in Los Angeles. 27-year-old John, on the other hand, was immediately apprehended on scene by police. Originally, the charges were for attempted murder, but when Dominique was declared dead, those charges were dropped and new first-degree murder charges were set, to which John reportedly pled not guilty. John's trial began in August of 1983, where he took the stand in his own defense, noting that prior to the October 30th altercation, John and Dominique had actually reconciled. John painted this narrative that the pair were planning on moving back in together, and that the two had daily discussions about getting married and having children, according to a Medium article. But then, October 30th came, and John claimed on the stand that Dominique reportedly changed her mind about the two getting back together. Clearly not a man who can take no for an answer. John noted that he exploded and lunged toward her, supposedly blacking out and only coming to when he realized he was on top of Dominique strangling her. John then clued in that, hey, Dominique's no longer breathing, and explained to the courtroom how he attempted to revive her by making her walk around, but she fell down. John then claimed he attempted to give Dominique CPR, which caused her to throw up. For some reason, he then told the courtroom that seeing Dominique throw up made him throw up. You all may recall how, when police came on scene, they saw John who told them he had killed his girlfriend and tried to kill himself? Well, John explained to the court that he ran into Dominique's house after he threw up, looking for some kind of pill to take in order to try and end his life. His narrative states he grabbed two bottles of pills before returning to the driveway, where he would lay down beside her, waiting for these pills that he randomly took to take effect. Weirdly enough, though, there were no pill bottles ever found, and John never seemed to experience any side effects of taking two random pills. I mean, for all we know, maybe he took an Advil and a Tums, but nonetheless, this is odd considering he reportedly took two bottles of random pills he found in Dominique's home and was not suffering any side effects. Regardless, John's court-appointed lawyer supposedly made the argument that John's actions were neither premeditated nor executed with malice. Rather, John's lawyer emphasized that John was provoked by Dominique's alleged deception, aka he was upset because she rejected him and therefore John acted in the heat of passion. John's version of events was dismissed by everyone around him, especially Dominique's family, who noted that Dominique was done with John and was not seeking some kind of reconciliation with him whatsoever. It seemed like John didn't really have a leg to stand on after he testified for himself with then the prosecution bringing in his ex-girlfriend Lillian to speak on her former relationship with John. It turns out that Dominique's experience with John was very similar to Lillian's. Lillian reported that during her relationship with John Sweeney, John assaulted her on 10 separate occasions and as a result, Lillian would be hospitalized twice for injuries she sustained from him. Some of Lillian's injuries included a broken nose, perforated eardrum, and a collapsed lung. John's response to Lillian was also not a smart response on his end, with the previously mentioned Medium article noting that John was so enraged by Lillian's testimony, he jumped up from his seat and ran towards the door leading to the judge's chambers. John would be intervened by two bailiffs and four armed guards before being handcuffed to his chair, whilst he then began crying john apparently apologized but regardless it was pretty intense what he did and again it didn't really help his case it didn't help how people were viewing him despite how i'm describing the trial which may seem like a slam dunk win for the prosecution along with dominique's friends and family there is a plot twist of sorts that happens and shakes all of this up See, Dominique's mother and friends reportedly weren't allowed to testify in the trial, which in my mind is weird because you'd think you'd want those inputs because they're pretty important. I mean, they are speaking from the victim's perspective and what they know of what happened between John and Dominique. However, the judge reportedly refused this to take place as there was concern it would lead into hearsay statements, especially regarding John's behavior. Then, on August 29th of 1983, John's defense attorney puts in a request that the judge rule the court lacked sufficient evidence to try John for the first-degree murder charge as predetermination was not established. Basically, there was no proof that John went to Dominique's home with the intent and plan to murder her that day. The request was granted and the jurors were instructed to consider the charges of manslaughter and second-degree murder instead of first-degree murder. Having said this, the jury was then tasked to evaluate on what they believed John was guilty for, if at all, based on what they had heard prior to and with these two new options for charges. For what happens next, I'm going to quote Dominic, which is Dominic's dad, whose journal entries during the trial were eventually turned into an article that was published in Vanity Fair. Quote, The strangulation death of Dominique Dunn was voluntary manslaughter and the earlier choking a misdemeanor assault. There was a gasp of disbelief in the courtroom. The maximum sentence for the two charges is six and a half years, and with good time and work time, the convict is paroled automatically when he has served half of his sentence, without having to go through a parole hearing. Since the time spent in jail between the arrest and the sentencing counted as time served, Sweeney would be free in two and a half years, end quote. The verdict to this day has been labeled as an injustice to Dominique and to anyone who has been in or is currently in a domestic violence relationship. After his release, John attempted to go back to work as a chef, but his past followed him. Allegedly, Dominique's family found out where he was working and handed out flyers outside of the restaurant John was hired at, called The Chronicle, which is located in Santa Monica, These flyers apparently said, The food you will eat tonight was made by the hands that killed Dominique Dunn. I only saw this in a couple of the resources I came across for Dominique's case, so I'm not sure if it's actually legit or not, but I figured I would mention it because if it is, it's pretty badass. It's one way to make a statement for sure. In referencing the Forever 80s blog due to the protests, John Sweeney eventually left his position at the Chronicle before moving and changing his name to John Mara. After the trial, Ellen, Dominique's mother, formed a victim rights advocacy group called Justice for Homicide Victims before sadly passing away at age 64 in January of 1997 after battling with multiple sclerosis for some time. Dominic, as mentioned, published his journal entries during the trial to Vanity Fair, in which the article was titled Justice, A Father's Account of the Trial of His Daughter's Killer. The article will be in today's resource list if anyone is interested in reading it. I found it quite eye-opening to hear Dominic's point of view of his daughter's case, but also just overall heartbreaking because, well, the whole situation is just that. It's heartbreaking. Before I wrap up this week's episode, I wanted to quote Dominic's article once more, as this stood out to me, and honestly, I just felt like it kind of brings everything together that we've talked about today. Quote, Not one of us regrets having gone through the trial, or wishes that we had accepted a plea bargain, even though Sweeney would have then had to serve seven and a half years rather than two and a half. We chose to go to trial, and we did, and we saw into one another's souls in the process. We loved her and we knew she loved us back. Knowing that we did everything we could has been, for us, the beginning of the release from pain. We thought of revenge, the boys and I, but it was just a thought, no more than that. Momentarily comforting. We believe in God and in ultimate justice, and the time came to let go of our obsession with the murder and proceed with life. Further, Dominic wrote, Dominique is buried near two of her mother's close friends, the actresses Norma Crane and Natalie Wood. On her marker, under her name and dates, it says, loved by all. I knelt down and put the yellow rose on her grave. Goodbye, my darling daughter. Whenever I cover a homicide-based true crime case, which is almost all of them thus far, I always wonder what life would have been like for the person had they not had their life tragically taken away from them. For example, Dominique would be 64 years old today, which is pretty young still in my mind, and the possibilities of what she could have done in all those years are endless. Because this episode highlights domestic violence, I am also going to add in today's episode description an international resource I came across in my research for those who may be in a similar situation or know someone in a similar situation to Dominique. Let me know your thoughts on today's episode over on the podcast social media accounts or feel free to shoot me an email. If you've enjoyed today's Weird Distractions episode, please consider telling your friends, family, coworkers anyone who you think needs a distraction about the show. Doing so is one of the best ways to support this show for free. Speaking of supporting the podcast for free, please consider leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, Spotify, or whatever platform you're tuning into. When it comes to any corrections that need to be made or perhaps some constructive feedback, please feel free to send me an email at weirddistractionspodcast at outlook.com. Are you looking to rep some Weird Distractions merch? Please check out the link in today's show notes for the bonfire link. It's never a bad time to treat somebody you love or perhaps treat yourself. Although the Patreon page is currently on an indefinite hiatus, I just want to thank the previous patrons of the show. Tom, Bailey, Angela, John, Alicia, Lynn, Shadow, Courtney, Cheryl, Susan, Jennifer, and Kristen. Thank you for supporting the Patreon page. I truly appreciate every single one of you. For those on social media, Weird Distractions can be found on Instagram, Twitter, Threads, TikTok, and Facebook. Lastly, I'm always wanting to hear from you. I'm looking to hear about your weird paranormal encounters, maybe too close to home true crime cases, and other weird experiences that you're willing to share to be featured on a future Listener Distractions episode. No matter how short, how long, spooky, or just weird, send your tales my way to, again, the show's email address being podcasts at outlook.com. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, if you need a distraction, I got you. Bye!